This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Stein Institute for Research on Aging's monthly public lecture. So my name is Luz Pinto. I am the Events and Marketing Manager at the Stein Institute for Research on Aging, as well as the Center uh, for Healthy Aging. So our group um, strives to advance health and well-being, and we do this through research, training, and outreach. And, and this here is an example of our outreach. We've been doing these public lectures for, I think it's almost 30 years, and we do this because we want to update you, our community, on all the advances that are happening on research. So today it's my privilege to introduce our speaker, um, Dr. Amy Jack. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Jack is a clinical neuropsychologist with extensive clinical and research-related expertise with older adults, normal cognitive aging, mild cognitive impairment, and dementia. She is an associate professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego, as well as a staff neuropsychologist and director of the TBI Cognitive Rehabilitation Clinic at the VA, San Diego Healthcare System. She is a fellow of the Society for Clinical Neuropsychology of the American Psychological Association and serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology. She has conducted numerous research studies and has published over 60 research articles, and these are peer-reviewed articles. Um, In fact, Dr. Jack is currently the principal investigator of a study investigating whether incorporating walking or a computer-based cognitive training can positively impact cognitive functioning in those with mild cognitive impairment. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Amy Jack. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming this evening. As Liz mentioned, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist, so really what that means is that my focus and really what what I emphasize and what I do in my day-to-day work is is look at people's cognitive functioning. So memory, attention, problem solving, those sorts of things, and try to determine um, what's going on with it if it's not working so well, what if anything can we do about it. Um, And of particular interest in the salient topic for this evening is, of course, things like behavioral interventions. So exercise. Can that be useful um, in in promoting good cognitive functioning and restoring cognitive functioning if you've had any declines? And that's really going to be the topic for this evening. So just to lay some of the foundation about why we might care about these sorts of things, um, maybe you already know, which is why you're here, but, um, but we have an aging population as a whole. So the percentage of Americans over the age of 65 has tripled, more than tripled actually, in the last century. And even in addition to just the general aging of the population, we have more kind of the oldest old group than we've really ever had before. So about 70,000 folks 100 or older right now. And by 2015, that's expected to increase somewhere to over 800,000. So this is the, you know, this is sort of the the picture of, of what's coming. And, and the positive things have come out of how we're better able to treat um, 
illnesses. And again, keep um, folks living longer. Along with that, though, I think we'd also like to make sure that folks are also living well as they're living longer. Um, and one of the unfortunate then downsides of an aging population is that age is actually one of the largest risk factors for dementia. And for Alzheimer's in particular, and Alzheimer's disease is the most common dementia. So if you're in the uh, folks in the age range of 65, say, to 70, the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is about 1 in 100. But again, if we think about that demographic I showed before, as the population continues to get older and, and have a higher proportion in that oldest old group, over 85 years, the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is somewhere between 20 and 50%. And the prevalence does, unfortunately, continue to rise as, as folks age. So, so it's, it's going to get more positive, I promise. This is the, this is the, the, un, the unfortunate statistics right now. Um, but truly, the, the concern that a lot of us doing this research have is that if these current trends continue with no other effective interventions or preventative treatments, that by about 2050, this is the anticipation that 14 million older adults, older Americans, are expected to have Alzheimer's disease. And this is what we're all interested in, in trying to prevent and avoid. So here's the kind of a, a schematic of a very simplified schematic of, of the cognitive aging process. So what, where we're really trying to intervene at this point or think about what can we do is if you follow that yellow line, you can see that's really where we want everybody to stay. You see that it, there's a little drop off at kind of the end of the, the, that yellow line, so there are some normal cognitive changes as people age, but it's not terribly dramatic. What we're really trying to avoid is kind of that blue path and certainly down into that red path. And so one of the things that um, has been a huge focus of research certainly are um, medication trials or pharmacologic trials to find drugs that work um, to prevent or stall or delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Um, unfortunately, they have not been as successful as we had hoped, and so 99% of those really have not um, proven to be effective in the way that we wanted them to be. So this is then the reason that, that a, a, lot of, um, a lot of folks are, are particularly turning their attentions to other behavioral interventions. Um, still certainly looking for medications that will work, that's not been abandoned, but also putting some additional emphasis on other things beside medication trials. And so um, one of those things certainly has been to look at exercise. Um, not to really, I guess, give away the, the final ending of my talk, but there really is quite strong evidence to support um, using exercise for lowering risk for cognitive decline and dementia. And that's really what I'm going to talk about is give you some of the details about what we know and the evidence that supports that and why, and why we think there's, that there is this really strong research base um, to suggest that you should um, be exercising not only for your physical health, but for your cognitive health. So one of the places that really this all originated from was if we look at the animal literature, and, and people have quite widely. So 
At a, at a pretty basic level, the idea was, was such that if you use um, rodents and put, uh, put them in a sort of plain old cage with nothing much in there but their food and water versus put them in an enriched environment, which is really giving them things to do, something that would simulate maybe their natural everyday environment if they were in, still in the wild. And Lo and behold, the animals that have these enriched environments do uh, much better on tasks of learning and memory. Um, their neuronal growth is more robust. Um, and so that enriched environment, that cognitively enriching environment, was good for their cognition. So along those same lines then, uh, different groups have looked at exercise, particularly in, in rodent populations and also found that if they're allowed to exercise, in case you're wondering, because I was wondering when I first started this research, I was like, really, how do you get the mice to, you know, you put the wheel in there and how do you get them to run? It's a natural behavior for them, so they do it um, sort of spontaneously, and I, I was also then thinking to myself how, how nice it would be if, if that was the case for humans. If we had, you know, or you have that treadmill that's sitting in your garage that you hang laundry on, and if we were all so, so motivated like the, the mice were to actually be on the treadmill just sort of naturally. But, um, so, so, but what we found was that if you allow the, the mouse or the rat to have this access to the running wheel, they will use it, and that those then that are allowed to exercise have um, way healthier hippocampus. And in fact, one of the more exciting things was not only that they have larger hippocampi, which is the structure in the brain really important for memory, but they actually have hippocampal neurogenesis once they start exercising. So some, some kind of generation of hippocamp, new hippocampal cells um, from the link to the exercise. So that was particularly exciting. And so that inspired a lot of uh, different research groups to say, wow, we have really solid evidence from the animal literature. Let's see what this looks like in humans. And so I have uh, a summary, multiple summaries, to try to give you kind of the, the gamut. So we have, um, as a starting point, a lot of epidemiological research. So large population-based studies, which you get a lot of information about people's history and then try to um, make some connections between the things they've endorsed that they did over their lifetime to how they're functioning now, which is how we understand some of the information that I put up here. So. People that endorse being particularly physically active when they were young or in their middle adulthood actually go on to have a lower risk of cognitive impairment as older adults. And multiple studies have shown that. If you move into midlife, say you weren't much of a sporty person when you were young, but you were doing more physical activity at midlife, this also is associated with a decreased risk of dementia or cognitive decline later in life. Um, so in general, this regular physical activity can reduce the risk or delay the onset of dementia. And why this is important, so again, um, the, the take-home message won't really be that exercise will completely prevent dementia in every single person, but that it does reduce risk levels rather substantially. And in those that might go on to develop dementia, that onset for those that have exercised is often delayed. And that delay can really be huge for quality of life, for financial reasons to the system of care, things like that.
Exercise actually has also been shown to be particularly valuable for anybody that is at genetic risk for cognitive decline. So there are some, some genetic factors that place people at higher risk for cognitive decline. And if you have one of those factors and are an exerciser, it seems to help modulate that risk level a little bit. Um, moderate exercise done either in mid or now getting into later life also has reduced the likelihood of mild cognitive impairment. So if you think back to that schematic where we had the yellow kind of normal cognitive aging line and then that blue line that was starting to have some cognitive decline, that's, that's that area of mild cognitive impairment. So that's a space where we wouldn't yet consider somebody to have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. The impairment is not significant enough. But again, their cognition is not what we'd expect for normal aging. It's kind of in that border zone and it's a risk factor for future cognitive decline. And so again, moderate exercise, either in mid or late life, then seems to reduce uh, the risk for kind of traveling down that blue path and staying more on the yellow path. Um, so for any of you out there thinking, okay, well, I didn't really exercise much as a youngster, and I didn't do that great about exercising when I was in middle age, so, you know, is, is, there, any, is there any hope for me? And I would say certainly there is much hope that a lot of the evidence also then supports that it's really never too late to begin a, a, some sort of physical activity program. Um, so starting later in life, there was some evidence that at least four hours of exercise per week can still protect against cognitive impairment, even in that oldest old group, and particularly in females. Um, kind of if you take all of this put together, that exercise seems to result in about a 20% reduction in risk for, for future cognitive impairment, or the equivalent of taking about three years off of your age. So again, there's, there's quite good evidence to support the benefits of exercise, again, not just on your physical self, but, but for your cognitive health as well. So, so I often... Um, have questions as well about, so this is nice as um, a potential preventative strategy, but what about for anybody who has already progressed to a place with cognitive impairment or with Alzheimer's disease? What does exercise do at that point? Um, and I will say that it's probably, the, the evidence is not quite as optimistic once somebody's progressed to Alzheimer's disease as it is as a preventive strategy. But there are some benefits to continued physical activity, even if somebody has, has declined to the point of, of dementia. Um, so it increases sort of physical health and increases survival rates, um, but doesn't tend to change cognitive um, functioning or rates of functional decline, um, which is unfortunate because I know that's, that's been sort of what, what we've all been hoping that it would do. Um, physical activity with, with folks with Alzheimer's disease can improve things though, like their nutritional status. The MMSE is a mini mental status exam, so kind of a quick cognitive screen. They may get a little bit of bump in that score. Um, again, not maybe enough to, to truly have a significant increase in their cognition, but some, some kind of bumps in, that, in some of the basic questions that we might ask somebody. Reduce things like fall risks um, and improve some behavioral problems or some psychiatric problems that can also emerge um, in Alzheimer's disease. So those are some benefits. 
A much more recent study took kind of another look and really um, engaged in a small trial. Um, people in much more moderate to, to significant kind of high intensity physical activity that also had Alzheimer's disease. Now again, they didn't find that there were dramatic cognitive improvements as a whole, but what they did find was that there was again some improvement in psychiatric and behavioral symptoms for the group that was exercising. But if they kind of drilled down and looked at the people who were particularly adherent to the program, were really coming three times a week, and this was all monitored and supervised, of course, but that they were really coming. They were really kind of working to the level of intensity that was being requested of them, that that subgroup actually did have a little bit better maintenance of cognitive functioning, meaning maybe not improvement, but not, not quite the same level of decline. Now again, this was a smaller study, and again, kind of structured and monitored with this moderate to high intensity activity. But again, kind of fits with this bigger picture that you get a lot of other benefits um, from exercise in Alzheimer's disease, even if it's, it, the evidence is a little bit equivocal about what it might do for your actual cognitive functioning. So these are the, the outward behavioral things that, that uh, we have found to happen with exercise related to your cognitive functioning. Um, but a lot of us are really interested too, like, great, that's the behavioral, but, but are we really making brain changes? Are we following what we saw in the animal literature? And are there really kind of actual changes in the brain that might be linked to these outward behavioral changes? And certainly at a very global level, if you rate people's cognitive and cardiovascular fitness, they do have less age-related volume loss in most areas of the brain. So in the frontal cortices, parietal, and temporal lobes. Um, we're particularly interested in the frontal lobe because this is the area that impacts planning, kind of um, volitional action, multitasking, kind of our higher level thinking center. And the temporal lobe in particular because these are our memory centers. So um, having kind of a less age-related volume loss in those areas in particular um, is very encouraging. Uh, those that are exercising regularly also have larger gray matter and white matter volumes. Again, in no specific brain region, if you just look at the brain as a whole, and we're particularly interested in, in both of those components of the brain, but white matter because it helps us do things quickly and sort of process information in an efficient manner. Um, and so then if you're looking at, at, at a kind of 50 to 80-year-old age range, those that had higher rates of exercise just over the last 10 years, right? So not looking so much epidemiologically, but just over the last 10 years, also had larger frontal lobes um, and reduced rate of, of temporal lobe atrophy. So maintaining better brain health for those that are exercising. In older adults, particularly uh, focused on then the hippocampus, which is a structure in your temporal lobe that's essential for memory. It's one of the first structures that's, that um, shows some sign of atrophy when there is cognitive decline or in dementia, so we're particularly interested in trying to maintain the health of the hippocampus. And those that have higher levels of aerobic fitness, so these are measured, kind of think about if anybody's done a, a stress test. So it's a VO2 max, the amount of um, kind of capabilities that, that your body has for aerobic activity. Um, people that had higher levels of aerobic fitness 
had larger hippocampal volumes on both sides of their brain. So that was kind of looking back and saying, okay, we've measured your physical fitness and it seems to correspond to how big your hippocampus is. And then they followed that study up, um, really kind of replicating what had been done in rodents and prospectively assigned individuals to an aerobic exercise group or, um, or a control group and found that those that began the exercise program in, uh, experienced hippocampal volume increases by about 2%. So average hippocampal volume loss per year over the age of, say, 65 is about 1% to 2% a year. In normal, healthy people, it may be a little bit more in folks that are declining rapidly. So really then, this was the equivalent of reversing that age-related loss by one to two years by, by um, engaging in this aerobic activity. So that was particularly exciting news. So I'm going to talk a little bit more um, about kind of everyday activity and walking in particular, but I also wanted to add that the, the studies that I had just talked about, these were um, exercise studies. So engaging in a guided program for the, for the purpose of raising your heart rate, right, aerobically driven activity. Um, but the most popular activity that anybody does, older adults or not, is walking for the most part. And so there's been some interest in saying, well, what about that? What about sort of that level of activity? And lo and behold, that walking also increases functional connectivity in the brain, so kind of the connections that the brain has between different areas, as well as then the corresponding cognitive, outward cognitive skills. And even walking increased average hippocampal volumes, this was a study on women, um, you know, up to kind of one-ish percent, which again might not sound like a lot, except if you remember what I said about average annual decline in hippocampal volumes is about one to two percent, an increase from walking by one percent is pretty notable. It makes a big difference in, in that particular trajectory. So, uh, in thinking about, about exercise, there's also all sorts of other activities that folks might participate in that, that we have begun to try to get a handle on and determine whether they're useful for um, enhancing cognitive functioning. And yoga is one of those. I actually get a lot of questions about, hey, what about, what about yoga? So yoga is a little bit more equivocal. So it's pretty clear that, that folks that participate and do yoga have lots of quality of life benefits, have lots of kind of mental health benefits. But like I said, the cognitive benefits are a little bit more equivocal. One recent study found some cognitive benefits, but a, a study from a few years ago really just hands down didn't find any cognitive gains. So again, there's lots of other benefits from yoga, but uh, probably doesn't rise quite to the level of aerobic activity and thinking about that for cognitive benefit. And then there's also been a lot of interest in uh, resistance or strength training, which also clearly has lots of other health benefits, particularly for women in maintaining strength and bone health and things like that. Um, but whether doing strength or resistance training, again, would have any cognitive benefit. And the answer seems to be leaning towards yes. Again, some of the older information was a little bit more equivocal, where it wasn't looking quite as favorable, but some of the more recent 
prospective studies that are actually randomized trials of strength and uh, resistance training have begun to demonstrate some positive impact on things like working memory, so kind of holding information in your, in your brain and doing something with it, and executive functioning. That's just our overarching term for that frontal lobe functioning, so the problem solving, the planning, the higher level thinking. And then if you use a, a meta-analytic approach, which is really just gathering all the studies that, that, that fit into your uh, subject matter and kind of pooling the data to get, to get bigger statistical power, that you do see that really then combining aerobic activity and something like strength or resistance training really might actually give you the, the most benefit of all that putting them together may be particularly beneficial for your cognitive functioning. I, I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the kind of the opposite end of the spectrum and talk just for a minute about sedentary behavior. So I um, I have to say, when you know, when I started some of this work, I sort of envisioned sedentary behavior as sort of just the the inverse of a physical activity, and and the research isn't isn't exactly supportive of that. Meaning that that you know, kind of doing your your thirty minutes of physical activity a day is great, but if you're sedentary, kind of the remainder of the time, that has its own detrimental effects. That perhaps that kind of exercise time that you did and should be applauded for isn't maybe going to really kind of balance out um, the negatives of that much sedentary behavior. So, you know, as I said here, meeting those physical activity guidelines doesn't exactly eliminate the negative consequences of prolonged periods of sitting. It can, you know, kind of at a health level, compromise metabolic health, increases mortality risk. Um, and so people have been begun to actually try to systematically study this. And just a couple of the more interesting um, results that I pulled, that older adults that have primarily sedentary pastimes have poor executive functioning. So again, that higher level thinking. So uh, and those then, and this, this last study was a... Um, a very large study, and those with a lifetime history, kind of higher lifetime history of television viewing, so a lot of TV watching, had lower cognitive functioning, particularly in executive functioning, than those who had kind of less history of overall of, of watching TV. So again, I like TV. I don't want to say that you shouldn't, you know, watch your shows and, you know, the news and some things that we watch are quite cognitively stimulating. But it's sort of that balance about engaging sort of predominantly in sedentary pastimes and trying to balance that out with some um, kind of movement and other physical activity. So I, I kind of hinted at a lot of uh, the research that has been done to date has been good, solid research that's done in the laboratory. So we bring people in and we monitor how long, say, they're on a treadmill or they're in a group exercise class, so we know how long they were participating in whatever the physical activity we, we were hoping that they would engage in, right? We're, they're being well monitored. And while that's very useful from a scientific perspective, again, to make sure that we, we kind of have a handle on that level of detail and we know what the input is, it's not 
really how we operate in the everyday world. I'm not saying people don't go to a gym, but sort of coming into a laboratory to exercise three times a week is probably not a sustainable um, approach for, for most people. And so um, a, a lot of us, myself included, have been particularly interested in trying to kind of see what does this look like, I guess, more in the real world um, and doing it prospectively. So again, I mentioned that we have a lot of epidemiological data or retrospective data where we're kind of looking back and asking people to say, hey, how much you know, did you exercise in the last year? How much did you exercise when you were a teenager to get that level of data? But um, from a scientific rigor perspective, asking people to engage in sort of, here's your exercise program, let's see what happens moving forward, gives us a lot of really good information as well. And those studies have been less common. A lot of studies have also been done with healthy aging. And so again, really valuable information to have to understand how people that are aging well are in fact aging well. Um, but, but we also have a lot of interest in seeing how and to what degree we can apply this to, to mild cognitive impairment or some of the studies that have been done in Alzheimer's disease. And most studies of exercise have been done in healthy aging, certainly not all, but many. Um, so, you know, that, like I said, that, that guided but ultimately independently done physical activity kind of in your own home on your own time has been less systematically studied. Again, how does this exercise happen in the real world? There's some benefits certainly to that. It's lower resources that are required that for, for the people to participate in. Um, it can expand accessibility, so individuals that may not really be able to come into the into your lab or to the specific place that they can do the exercise where they're at. Um, and again, kind of just to get a better handle on, we know what it looks like in a very clean setting within a laboratory, but what does it kind of look like in everyday life? So we have a little bit of information about that. This was a particularly well done study that um, they looked at actigraphy, so this is sort of a, um, usually it's a kind of like a wristwatch sort of apparatus that, that people wear that track their activity, often as well as some other things. And basically just looked at people, uh, how, they, how much activity they had in their everyday life. Now certainly if they were doing purposeful aerobic activity, it would pick that up as well. Um, but what was really interesting is that, particularly in women, those that had this highest just general daytime activity did have significantly better cognitive functioning, and those tests that I listed are tests of executive functioning, um, than individuals who had lower levels of daily activity. And so, you know, one of the questions I had when I was reading this study, which then they also answered kind of through their statistical methods, was, okay, but so maybe these people that are moving a lot throughout the day, right, always on their feet, always going, are also the people who happen to be doing a lot of aerobic exercise. So they really um, statistically were able to control for that particular variable and kind of take that off the table, and they still found then that there was a bump in cognitive functioning from people who were just moving more, so um, increased daily, basic daily activity. So, so this was of particular interest to me, and a few years ago, the, the Stein Institute actually um, has pilot grants, and I was awarded one of those pilot grants, and we did a study to look at just that. So now a walking intervention that people did in 
kind of in their own daily life, we gave them a structured program to follow to see if increasing that level of daily activity would help their cognitive functioning. So it was a 12-week study. We had 15 um, healthy older adults who, healthy, sedentary, but otherwise healthy, uh, 65 to 80. They all wore a pedometer, which again is pretty low-tech device. This was even kind of before like Fitbits and all the wearable technology took off. So this is a really low-tech step count that they that they used um, to track their daily steps activity. Now they did receive weekly calls from the study coordinator to say, here's your next step goal and to follow up and see if they had met their, their goal um, for the past week. Um, and they were split, so seven increased their, their daily steps over the course of the 12 weeks and eight just participated in their activity as usual. Still wore the pedometer, we still tracked their activity and we tested them um, cognitive tests before um, and after their participation. So just to give you though a flavor of when I say kind of progressively increase their step counts, again these were reasonably sedentary individuals so baseline step counts were somewhere usually between say two or three thousand steps a day. To give you a little bit of a framework of where that lies, the general kind of Surgeon General's recommendation is usually for about 10,000 steps a day. So they were falling well short of that um, and so we very slowly up their step count so say in the first week they were only asked to increase about 300 steps a day but the next week then it was 400 steps a day and then 600 steps a day right so you can kind of see the progression but it really was very slow and very gradual but by the end of the intervention if they were following the protocol which they did for the most part they they had up their step counts close to sort of four to 5,000 steps. So they were ending in kind of the seven to 8,000 step range, which again is maybe below that 10,000 step mark. But if you think about where they started, that was a pretty dramatic increase in their daily activity. And then this is what happens to their cognitive functioning. So these are tests of executive functioning. Um, and across the board, really, every executive functioning measure that we gave them showed um, some significant increases in the walking group compared to the control group. So certainly the control group had some bump, often that's from a practice effect um, that they both have by taking the test once and then taking the test again 12 weeks later. But you can see that then the, the walking group had, a, had improvements kind of above and beyond what we would expect just from practice. More executive functioning tests. Um, not all of them are significant changes, um, but the vast majority of executive functioning measures showed a positive increase in response to this increase in, in daily walking. We did not see, though, the same um, significant increases in memory or other health variables. So that uh, the first couple of columns there, GDS is um, the geriatric depression scale. So this was in there because one of the ideas about why does exercise really help is because maybe it improves your mood. Um, and that's giving you some of that cognitive boost that you're kind of stripping off some mood changes. Um, and so there was a little bit of 
of positive change in depressive symptoms, but not different between the groups and not enough to um, kind of be a significant difference. The, the walking group actually slept a little bit better, not significantly so, but that was another um, kind of hypothesis or one thing about maybe exercise actually, for most people, does do positive things for your sleep. And so if you're getting a better night's rest, maybe your cognitive functioning is, is improved because of that. So it didn't seem like sleep was... Um, you know, the, the biggest component here, they lost a few pounds, the walking group, although not significantly more than the other group, but they did lose a few pounds. And that last column is a wordless learning test. Um, and like I said, we didn't find significant differences in memory performance, but we did in executive functioning. So in this, and again, it's a small pilot trial, but it really was fitting and in line with some of the data that was emerging that even after this three-month, you know, kind of gradual daily step increase. Um, there was positive changes in their executive functioning, although not, not the same level of changes in memory, attention, mood, or health variables. Um, we did follow up with these individuals, and three months later, they, they still had maintained these, these improvements in their executive functioning, and not all of them had maintained that particular level of walking, but some of them had. So really what this led us to conclude was that even small increases in physical activity does lead to improvements in ex executive functioning in older adults. So that was very encouraging. And where we're going with that information now through some funding through the Alzheimer's Association is really to take that walking program and apply it to individuals that have mild cognitive impairment. Again, so translating from normal kind of healthy aging to mild cognitive impairment. And can they follow the walking program at home? Can they do it semi-independently, again, with guidance, but, but at, at their leisure in their own environment? Um, and we're also comparing it uh, to some computer-based cognitive training and then combining them both together. Um, but this study just started uh, a little over a year ago, so I don't have any data to present. I just kind of wanted to give you some of the future directions that we're heading. So hopefully I've, I've given you a reasonable body of evidence that, that physical activity is beneficial to your cognitive functioning. But a lot of us are just very curious and say, that's great, but why? <laughs> what is it, what's really going on? Why is, why is something that seems like, oh, it should help your heart, it should help your vascular system, it's helping your brain. So there's many hypotheses, and I will say that this list is probably um, not a pick one and that's the definitive. It's probably going to be a combination, ultimately, of, of many of these things. So you get some general health gains from exercise. So if you lower your vascular burden, right, if you lower your blood pressure, if you, you know, kind of lower some of your metabolic risk factors from exercise, you get healthy brain benefits from those things as well. You do get some increased ability of the heart to deliver oxygen. The brain really likes oxygen and glucose. Uh, you get increased cerebral blood flow, so kind of increasing the metabolic resources to the brain might be a piece of it. Um, there's certainly some evidence that it becomes a bit neuroprotective, so that if something else might happen to your brain, you're a little bit better buffered against some of those other things that might go wrong because you had some of this additional um, protection. There, there's some interesting information about it as a stress-reducing technique. 
So I don't want to go too far afield, but certainly with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, there's been some emerging information about long-term risk for cognitive decline for individuals that have PTSD. And one of the hypotheses is because it's sort of a chronic stress reaction that does negative things to your cognitive functioning over time. And exercise is an excellent way to reduce stress and to reduce that level of cortisol to the brain. So again, kind of um, can reduce some of those physiological components of stress, as well as just truly improve your mood so that there's clearer thinking, so that some of those um, maybe mental health comorbidities aren't impacting cognitive functioning to the same degree. it, it does facilitate learning by the process of long-term potentiation in the brain. So it really facilitates that actual process in the brain. It, there's some in, uh, information that inflammation may be one of the mechanisms by which exercise helps and that exercise helps reduce inflammation and therefore enhances cognitive functioning. Um, as I mentioned, in the animal literature as well as in the human literature, that there, there has been um, evidence of neurogenesis rather, in the hippocampus, so actually kind of you know, having new cells in an area relevant to memory may be a, a component of the benefit to cognition. And exercise also upregulates some growth factors that we have in our system. So brain-derived neurotrophic factor may be one in particular that exercise sort of stimulates that particular growth factor, which then has a positive impact on the rest of your cognitive functioning. And as I said, I don't think that it's sort of, oh, it's, it's just going to be the inflammation or it's just going to be the neurogenesis. It's probably some combination of, of many of these, these ideas, but this is where we are with thinking about how exercise impacts cognition as, as we understand it now. Okay, so then usually people say, that's all great, we love the science, you know, but really what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so here's hopefully some more practical recommendations gleaned from, from that research literature about, about what, what's, what is we're really asking people to do to enhance or, or maintain their cognitive health. So uh, exercise at least as intense as walking, a minimum of about three times a week. Now again, the recommendations for physical health or cardiovascular health might be different from this, but for cognitive health, this is, this is sort of the minimum marker. Um, any variety that you can do in your exercise is also welcome, but again, something even as simple as increased walking would do it. Um, as I mentioned, there, there is some evidence to suggest that if you combine aerobic activity with strength or resistance training, that you may get even more cognitive benefit than one of them alone. Um, as I kind of showed from just that brief trial of, of walking, short interventions have, have some cognitive benefit, but three to six months kind of or, or longer seem to be really the minimum um, suggestion to reap cognitive benefits. Um, so like I said, because they can really accrue over a relatively short period of time, but sort of just to be sure, three to six months or more is probably the best recommendation. Um, 
there, there's some information about if you've been actually exercising and that you're able to maintain that level, kind of the duration and an approximate intensity that you're used to exercising at, that that's particularly beneficial. Um, because I mentioned yoga, definite improvements in other factors, a little bit equivocal about whether it improves cognitive functioning or not. So kind of maybe improves cognitive functioning. Um, the, uh, to be sure to break up periods of sedentary activity with periods of activity. So again, that idea of sort of sit less, move more, even if it's not all aerobic activity, just intersperse those periods of, of sedentary with activity. And certainly then think about the, that level of everyday activity. So it doesn't, although it's great if you go to the gym regularly and do kind of purposeful aerobic activity, but even if it's been a really long time since you've been to the gym and that feels a little overwhelming, daily increases in just walking or sort of everyday activity also seem to have some potential to have cognitive benefits. Um, as with sort of everything, you know, we, we like to study these things um, in isolation because it makes it nice and clean for us as, as researchers. But in the real world, most of this stuff goes on together, meaning you're probably not just doing whatever your exercise is and not trying to maintain a healthy diet, or you might have social en engagement with other people, family members or friends, or you might be doing things that are cognitively stimulating, computer games crossword puzzles, reading new books, whatever. So ultimately, a lot of these kind of combinations of things matter too. So exercise matters, and I have and could do a whole other talk on kind of cognitive stimulation or other, other behavioral factors that also play positively into your cognitive functioning. And ultimately, those sorts of combinations may, may also be particularly beneficial. So a couple of those studies that are listed there, even things like there was a, um, a study of, of using an exercise bike, just kind of a regular old exercise bike, versus being on an exercise bike with a screen and kind of playing a video game, so kind of cognitively stimulated while you're doing physical activity. And that group got way more cognitive benefit than just riding the exercise bike alone. So this is, this is kind of the idea of combining some of those um, cognitive, physical, um, social support, dietary, things like that. Um, Less work has been done and really more work is needed on combining then cognitive training with some of the medications that we do often think of and use for dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So there have been a couple of trials for the, the drugs that are on the market and have shown some efficacy for um, Alzheimer's disease to partner them with something like physical activity. And you do seem to get more of a, of a boost from that kind of combo package than from either in isolation. Um, as I mentioned, you know, from our animal literature as well as from other human literature, that those enriched environments, right, doing things that are cognitively engaging as well as physically engaging are particularly useful for um, your cognitive functioning. And the idea for that is that potentially that physical activity kind of sets the stage for, um, for the neurogenesis that then gets even further enhanced by, say, cognitive activity or cognitively stimulating information that's coming in. 
So just a few things um, that, that seem to come up a, a lot. Certainly there's a ton of future directions and questions that we don't have the answer to yet. But one of the things um, that, that people ask me frequently and really is still an area somewhat wide open is this idea about, okay, so, but, you know, we know that walking is a good activity, but what's the best physical activity? Like, what's really going to give me the best cognitive functioning? And we don't really know. Is, you know, is swimming better than walking? Or do you need to play tennis? Or is, is it dancing? Um, and, and for the most part, different physical activities have, haven't been pitted against one another to see, um, besides sort of walking um, versus, say, like strength training. So that's kind of an open question. Um, my current answer to that about what's the best activity to do is usually if whatever activity you'll do is the one that you should do. <laughs> so even if I came in here like next time and said, they've done the study and they said swimming. Swimming's the best cognitive activity. And you're like, I'm not getting in the pool. I don't have a swimsuit or whatever, right? If you're not going to swim, it's not, you're not gonna, <laughs> it's not the best activity for you. Um, so, and same thing, kind of about time. So most studies have looked somewhere in the 30 to 60 minute range, because um, that's been the recommendation for physical health. Um, but we don't really 100% know if that's what you need for cognitive health. So thinking about the time and the frequency, we don't have definitive data on that. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we have a lot of epidemiological data that says, hey, if you were, you know, kind of a, exercised a lot as a teenager and kept up your physical activity into midlife, that you reap some benefits from that. But we don't really know what kind of, what's the latest point at which you could, say, begin an exercise program if you were generally not very physically active throughout your life to still gain some of those benefits. It, it's looking like late in life will still be effective, but we, but we don't have kind of that that pinned down quite as well as we might like. Um, and then certainly, as I mentioned, some of those kind of combo studies. So what about some of the medications that maybe didn't fare 100% well in their clinical drug trial, but there was some subset of people that seemed to have some benefit? What if you added exercise to that? Again, what if you put kind of medication and, and behavioral interventions together? Would, would they work better than if you kept them separate? So... Final conclusions, no known study has really found that exercise makes cognition worse. So, so, um, so there's, you know, little, little risk. You know, my, my disclosure should be that you should clear anything you do with your physician first. But in general, there's no negative cognitive consequences to physical activity. And for most people, at least increasing kind of daily activity has, has low risk for most individuals. Um, and so really, as I kind of started out, and I know I already gave you the, the final punchline of my talk, but yes, exercise is really good for your cognitive functioning. It's highly recommended if you're physically able to participate. So, and just a few acknowledgments of the places that have funded the work that I have done, and I thank you very much for your attention. So, so it sounds like the question is, is really, can, can exercise or physical activity counteract any negative side effects from other medications or something along those lines? Do certain medications guarantee to affect your ability to exercise and your cognition? Mm -hmm. so, so 
there's really not been so much of, of that research done as far as thinking about um, kind of medication side effects specifically and, cog- and exercises ability to maybe counteract some of those. Um, it's not exactly your question, but certainly that's been, has been investigated at least with certain other risk factors. So again, genetic risk factors, exercise seems to try to counterbalance that. Again, it doesn't eliminate or erase them entirely, but there's some you know, kind of added benefit to be um, being active to counterbalance some of of that, but but I but I don't have probably the information that that you're seeking. I don't think it exists yet for the the medication side effect piece. Yeah, right behind you. Okay, so I'm going to start with your your first couple of questions, um, and the, the question really was, I think trying to gauge what's the right then if exercise is is good for me. That's kind of the take home message from today. But but what like what's an okay level for me when you, you know, when I'm saying aerobic or whatever, like, what, do, what does that really mean? And that, that to some degree is, is, a, is an individual question that's probably honestly best answered by your physician or, or somebody that's actually kind of prescribing the, the physical activity that knows um, what a decent aerobic range is, right? What kind of elevates your heart rate to a place that you're in an aerobic zone. But yeah, you're right. Nobody wants you to be, you know, kind of exercising to the point that you're, you're, you kind of collapse, right? That, that's not the spirit of it either. So in that light, I would say, you know, it's a legitimate question. I would definitely ask your physician sort of what might, say, a target heart range be for somebody um, of your age and your health status and so that you can find that place, like you said, that feels comfortable, you know, like, you know, you're working a little bit hard, but not not uh, working too, too hard. And probably same thing with weights. You know, what is kind of legitimate for where everybody is? And, and again, it's, it's because everybody's going to be pretty individual about uh, where their starting point is, depending on, you know, your, your health status, your level of physical um, activity that you've already participated in, that sort of thing. As far as the sleep medication goes, that's unfortunately probably a little outside my scope to be able to answer. I was thinking at least at some point, I know there was a, a sleep lecture that, that, that was part of the series, um, and I, I'm wishing they were here right now to answer your question. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to probably answer the, the ambient question. No pain, no gain. <laughs> well, and, and, but what I would say to that, too, is A, ask your physician, but also kind of keep in mind maybe some of the points of the data that I showed that just upping kind of general everyday activity, so without the pain, just move more, has some cognitive benefit as well. But to find that kind of healthy place for aerobic activity, definitely, you know, consult, consult your, your physician about that. So the question was really about the interaction of, of diet with, with exercise, and um, you kind of mentioned you know, the benefits of eating things like fish or, or things that, um, along those lines. So there certainly are some studies looking at, at diet. Um, one of the big ones looked at the Mediterranean-style diet, right? So kind of healthy fats, fish, vegetables. Um, again, some of that, it's... Uh, a less familiar literature to me, but what I know of it is a little bit still equivocal, that there are some, again, kind of general health benefits and maybe some hints of cognitive benefits, um, but it's not quite as clear-cut. But, but that's another question, right, then if you kind of enhance those two together with exercise. So that was sort of the idea about 
doing more work to study these combo studies um, of, of these sorts of things. Um, there was another flyer out on the out on the table as well, and it wasn't looking at diet, but it was another kind of combination study about looking at um, about combining different of these kind of cognitive and and health factors together to yeah to try to get that picture of yeah what what does it really look like because most people aren't doing these behaviors in isolation in the real world anyway. The question was about any existing research that I know about um, ongoing to participate in that that combines uh, kind of nutrition and and exercise. And I don't, actually, off the top of my head. But you can always, um, our uh, UCSD's Alzheimer's Disease Research Center is often a good resource for ongoing studies. Again, don't necessarily have to have Alzheimer's disease. They're looking for healthy participants, for mild cognitive impairment, um, et cetera. As well as you can always look at clinicaltrials.gov. They all have a, again, it's across the country. Everything might not be local, but you can always get kind of a nice um, view about any clinical trials that are going on, particularly with a keyword like, you know, nutrition and aging or nutrition and exercise to try to see if there's something um, going on. But I can't think right now off the top of my head that, that's focusing on the nutrition piece. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So the comment was if you notice cognitive changes in yourself or in a loved one or a friend, have it checked out immediately. And you're right, because sometimes they're, they're very uh, reversible things. Um, yeah, so having it checked out is, is a healthy thing to do. Yes, sir. The question was about what do I mean when I say computer cognitive training? And so, you know, usually what I'm thinking of and referring to are these computer-based programs that have, you know, kind of cognitive games and things, but they're in a set it's a set program. However, there is definitely lots of evidence to suggest that participating in cognitively stimulating activities, learning a new language, I think was one of your examples, you know, learning something off the computer, does have cognitive benefit as well. Um, Without the computer. With or without the computer, absolutely. Just doing something that's new and novel for your brain. I don't see any other hands for questions, so thank you. If you do, please come see me after. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.